And so who can stop the Lord Almighty? Well, God, you know, we think we can. <laughs> Nailed you to a tree. Uh, but even that didn't stop you. Even that was according to your plan. And so, God, uh, we ask that you would, that you would help us to uh, submit to your plan, surrender to your plan, surrender to your word. Um, God, I pray that you would help us to preach this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as I told you, we've been preaching from the prophets, and uh, this morning I want to look at this like amazing story in the book of First Kings. In First Kings chapter 12, the nation of Israel splits in, in two, and a man named Jeroboam leads the ten northern tribes of Israel that, that are now called Israel. He leads them in rebellion against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon of the house of David of the tribe of Judah, now the nation of Judah. So you can see they have actual photos there on the screen of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. It's through Rehoboam of the house of David, of the tribe of Judah, that God promises the Messiah. Genesis 49, verse 9, the lion of the tribe of, of Judah. And yet, directed by God, Jeroboam establishes the northern kingdom called Israel, or sometimes called Samaria. That's where we get the term Samaritan. But then King Jeroboam, he worries that his people will reject him if they continue to travel south, which is up to Jerusalem um, in Judea in order to worship. And so that's where we get to 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. So the king, Jeroboam, in the north took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, you have gone up, which is south, right, to Jerusalem long enough. Look at your gods. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of, of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Uh, one calf in Bethel, one calf in Dan. So you understand, Jeroboam, he messes with the word of God in order to create a religion more conducive to his political aspirations. He makes idols like the ones that the Israelites made in the wilderness on their journey to the, to the promised land. Israel, remember, was commanded to make no graven images, and yet they chose to make graven images in the wilderness. They chose to make golden calves. Have you ever wondered why they made something like golden calves instead of something cool like, like a lion? Well, I guess in a sense it would make some sense because lions are kind of dangerous, right? They're not safe. And a calf is, well, that would be pretty useful to a Bronze Age or Iron Age farmer. Worshiping a calf would be like worshiping one of these. This is a 410-horsepower John Deere tractor. Or maybe it would be like worshiping one of these. This is a 490-power Corvette uh, Stingray. That's cool. And it really isn't dangerous. I mean, you drive it and you wear a seatbelt. Jeroboam may have chosen the calf because everybody wanted one, like a Corvette. 
Or he may have chosen the calf in order to appeal to the worshipers of Baal, the Canaanite fertility god, who was depicted as a calf or, or a bull. For them worshiping, a worshiper of Baal, for them worshiping a golden calf would have been like worshiping one of these. I had one of these on the wall in my bedroom in high school. Or maybe worshiping one of these. You worship one of these in a theater from a distance uh, in a seat, you know, where, where it's safe. Probably, Jeroboam was going for something more like one of, one of these. He was trying to capture the immensely rich tradition of Israel, keep it locked up in a shrine in Bethel, and then utilize it for his own purposes. Respectable civic religion is by far and away the most dangerous type of idol, which is thoroughly ironic because it seems that type of idol which is most incredibly safe, right? But you know that it wasn't raging sex-crazed pagans that delivered Jesus up for crucifixion. It was religious Jews that felt threatened by the real Jesus and preferred a false Jesus, a false Jesus dangerous to Romans, but one that was entirely safe for them, one who worked for them, you know, like a calf would work for a farmer, or a pretty girl would work for, for a man or a boy in high school. Dorothy Sayers wrote this. The people who hanged Christ never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with the atmosphere of tedium, we have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. We've paired the claws of the Lion of Judah and turned him into a pet for clerics and pious old ladies. But we've also turned him into an elephant for Republicans, and a donkey for, for Democrats for 1,500 years. Ever since the church became part of Rome, governments and the empires have used Jesus, who is the word of God, to unify worldly kingdoms judge and judge other people out of those kingdoms. Assure the people that are in and judge others out. In my lifetime, we've used the word of God to promote racism in places like the Middle East. We're Christians. Christians have actually taught that God loves Jews more than Arabs and actually needs the help of the U.S. military in order to ensure the coming of his kingdom. We've taken the word of God and twisted him to justify warfare, murder, slavery, racism, adultery, fornication, divorce, twisted him, declawed him, tamed him, so as not to feel the sting of his words. As a pastor, I know that for the sake of getting people to approve of me and give money to the church budget, there are certain portions of the Word of God recorded in Scripture that are, well, they're just abundantly clear, but uh, nonetheless prudent to, like, simply avoid. You know what I mean? For instance, Scripture about things like divorce or adultery sexual sin. But even more, even more than that, the extreme danger of wealth, perhaps even more than that, our duty to outcasts and foreigners and 
immigrants. But even more than that, and this is the one that's really shocked me over the years, even more than that, the place where pastors are most tempted to pair the claws of the Lion of Judah, the thing that is most tempting to avoid, the thing that's most offensive about the Word of God, is grace. People do not like to hear that God is absolute love. I've learned this, which means that they're saved absolutely and completely by grace, because that means that they're no better than their neighbor, that they must forgive their enemies, enter the kingdom, and that if God gets his way, everyone that's anyone will be saved. Grace is the lion's claw that cuts most deeply into human flesh. See, church, church, that, that thing right there is pretty easy to turn into an idol. What I mean by that is it's pretty easy to get that thing to, to work for you and against your enemies. But this, this not so much. Naked man hanging on a tree for the sins of the world. How do you, how do you work this? <laughs> how do you get this to work for you or does this work you. Well, anyway, I was just saying, Jeroboam messes with the word of God in order to make a new and improved religion. Jeroboam messes with the word of God, and now the word of God messes with Jeroboam. 1 Kings 13, verse 1. And behold, check this out, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of God, the word of the Lord, to Bethel. He, he prophesies, but he's not called a prophet. He's just called a man of God. And hey, we're supposed to be like men and women of God, right? Jeroboam was standing by the altar, right, in the northern kingdom, getting ready to make, so he's acting as the priest and the king and the prophet. He's standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man, Ha-Adam in Hebrew, the Adam, the Adam cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king, King Jeroboam, heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar of Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given to the word, uh, by the word of the Lord. So Jeroboam messes with the word of God, and the word of God messes with Jeroboam. The word of God causes this unnamed man of God to journey from the southern kingdom to the northern kingdom, and rebuke the king, and when the king resists the word, the word turns his hand into something like shriveled up leather, leather or, or, or stone. Now, we know that Jesus is the word, right? And we know that Jesus is the lion of, of Judah. He's not a calf. Jesus isn't the calf of God. He's the, the lion of God. In the Chronicles of Narnia, you remember that he's a lion named Aslan. Is he quite safe, asks Susan, you remember in the story, when she discovers that the, that the king of Narnia is a lion, she asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. Technically, the Lion of Judah is the word of the good. Remember, Jesus said, no one is good but God alone. So no thing is gooder than the word of God, God who is the good. The word of God is faithfully recorded in Scripture, I believe, but the word of God living and incarnate in human flesh is Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the word of God in human flesh, and that word of God on the tongue of the man of God is also somehow Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's nothing gooder than the word of God and nothing more powerful. The lion has roared, who will not fear, writes Amos the prophet. The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy. Through Isaiah, God says, my word shall not return empty or void, but it will accomplish that for which I sent it. In the beginning, God spoke space and time itself into existence with a word. He spoke the planets and the stars and the earth into existence with a word. He spoke animals and fish and birds into existence with his word. And then he spoke this word, let us make man, Adam, humanity, in our own image after our likeness. Not some men, just man, humanity. So do you think that word fails? <laughs> kind of looks like it when you look around, huh? Do you suppose that God is still speaking? His word? In the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the lion sings the world of Narnia into existence, but Uncle Andrew, who stumbles upon Narnia, is a magician. In other words, he idolizes himself. He thinks he's sung himself into existence, and so he will not be sung into Aslan's existence. He won't hear the words of the song. He only hears roaring. He's insane. So in his mercy, Aslan breathes on him and puts him to sleep. You know, everyone in the Old Testament except Elijah and Enoch get put to sleep like that. They sleep with their fathers in Sheol, sometimes translated hell. In the fourth book of the Chronicles of Narnia, a girl named Jill suddenly finds herself in Narnia all alone and just desperately thirsty. And she spies this river of fresh water, but then she sees this immense lion in the way. The lion says, if you are thirsty, come drink. But she's terrified. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, um, could, could I, would, would you mind going away while I do so, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. 
Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promises, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming a step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. The lion in the way is the way. To him, you have to lose your life to find it. But now, of course, that's just a children's story, right? You go to the movies, you see that. Narnia, that's safe. That's just a children's story. Well, anyway, King Jeroboam, back to our story, King Jeroboam messes with the word of the Lord, and now the word of the Lord messes with King Jeroboam, turns his arm like into stone. Next verse. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me, come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for so was it commanded to me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel. So this fellow, this old prophet, is part of the religious establishment. So he has a vested interest, right, in King jo- Jeroboam's new, newfangled, uh, improved religion. He's a professional prophet. An old prophet lived in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. So he's at home, and the sons watched this thing happen with the king. They also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king, that the man of God spoke to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone, and he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it, and he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak, under a tree. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then the old prophet said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And the man of God said, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. And the old prophet said to him, Well, uh, I also am a prophet, as you are. And an angel, an, an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he, the man of God from Judah, went back with him, the old lion prophet from Bethel in Samaria, and ate bread in his house and drank water. So does that make sense to you that he would do that? It does to me. Imagine how frightened and alone this 
man of God from Judah felt. He's utterly alone, speaking a word that everyone hates. And now this prophet says to him, hey, I'm also a prophet, and God has revised the plan. And so desperate to belong, he quickly doubts the word in his own heart, the word in his own understanding, the word in his own experience, and gladly surrenders that word to the words of someone who offers him validation. In other words, he surrenders to religion. Next verse. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back, the formerly lying prophet. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Wow! <laughs> and after he, the man of God from Judah, had eaten and drunk, he, the old prophet, saddled the donkey for the, the prophet. Now he's called a prophet, the man from Judah. That's weird. For the prophet who he had brought back, remember, from the way. And as he, the man of Judah, went away, a lion met him on the road on the way and killed him. Dang. The man of God messed with the word of God, and the word of God messed with the man of God. The word of God messed with, with the man of God. I mean, first, religion messed with him, right? The religion of this false prophet messed with him first, and so he messed with the word of God in his own heart, and a lion in the way killed him. Holy crap! I mean, did Aslan just kill the guy? I mean, understandably, people get stressed about scriptures like this. I, I used to, but, but I, I don't think I do so much anymore. And I suppose that's because I've had an experience in which I really, I really thought Jesus was going to kill me. And in a way, he did. And, and it was wonderful. I suppose it's also because I've become more aware that this old body of mine will die. It's inevitable. I'm just figuring that out. <laughs> and it's, I don't know, it's comforting to me to know that Jesus is in charge of the whole process. You know, in the Revelation, he's the reaper. It's not a grim reaper. Jesus is the reaper. He's my beginning and my end, which is a constant new beginning. He said that he'd come for each of us, and he told each of us to pick up our cross and come. Do you know what crosses do to people? And of course, this makes a tremendous difference. I've come to believe that Jesus has no interest in endless torture. He's only interested in setting me free and setting you free to love and be loved. And so he's not safe. But he's good. The lion kills the man of God who surrenders the word of God in his heart to religion. And now people will say, okay, right, Peter, that's a neat Old Testament ancient story, but now we know better. Now, now uh, we have the New Testament. That's just the Old Testament. It's not the same in the New Testament, which, which tells me they probably haven't read the New Testament, and if they've read it, they haven't believed it. 
In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit baptizes the church with fire. There are amazing miracles. People, people happily share everything that they have with, with each other. It's like the new Jerusalem come down. And then this couple, remember, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell some property, and they say, they say that they give all the proceeds to the church, but they keep some of the proceeds for themselves. They lie. In other words, they crucify the word of truth in their own hearts in order to make themselves look good in the sight of the church. That's religion. Human religion. Peter confronts each one of them individually, saying, you could have just kept the property because it was yours. You could have just kept it, or you could have just told the truth, but you, quote, contrive this deed in your heart, and then in there, uh, as he confronts each of them, both of them die. Or maybe Aslan puts them to sleep, you know. Whatever the case, God protects his infant church from those that would sacrifice his word in their own heart in order to look good and feel accepted by the church, which then is not really the church anymore, is it? It's a religious crowd just like the crowd that nailed Jesus to the tree in the garden. God protects his infant church from human religion, and God protects and delivers Ananias and Sapphira from themselves. Because see, actually, I'm convinced that he does that with each of us, each and all of us. Everyone must die to the opinions of men and the religious act that we call ourselves. And when you do that willingly, it's called faith. And this faith actually is not of yourselves, but it's a gift from God that none should boast, faith. Vincent Donovan was a missionary to the Maasai tribe in Africa, and he struggled to define faith for the Maasai he had described it as something like some sort of intellectual thing that you do somewhere in your head. He struggled to define it for the Maasai until one day an old elder of the Maasai tribe told him this. Faith, he said, is not like a white hunter who shoots an animal with his gun from a great distance. For a man really to believe is like a lion going after its prey. His nose and eyes and ears pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in the terrible death leap and single blow to the neck with the front paws, the blow that actually kills. And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops it in his arms, pulls it to himself, and makes it part of himself. This is the way a lion kills. This is the way a man believes. This is what faith is. And then he said this, We did not search you out, Father Vincent. We did not even want you to come to us. You searched us out. You followed us away from your house into the bush, into the plains, into the steps where our cattle are, into the hills where we take our cattle for water, into our villages, into our homes. You told us of the high God, how we must search for him, even leave our land and our peoples to find him. But we have not done this. We have not left our land. We have not searched for him. He has searched for us. He has searched us out and found us. All the time we think we are the lion, and in the end, the lion is God. Religion is what man does. It's how we mess with the word of God. Faith is what God does. 
It's how the word of God messes with us. You know, when a lion kills, it does so by isolating its prey from the herd, the crowd. The crowd in its very concept, you can think about this, the crowd in its very concept is untruth, wrote Soren Kierkegaard. The crowd makes everyone just the same. Jesus doesn't want a crowd. He doesn't want one more disciple, one more religious person. He, he wants you. In fact, he'll leave the 99 in the wilderness to come after you. He doesn't want religion. He wants you. The crowd is untruth, but the lion is the truth. Jesus said this. He said, my sheep hear my voice. And then he told us that he calls them by name. If you've ever watched a shepherd in Palestine, you know that the goats are driven by the shepherd with a switch. But the sheep follow along. They uh, follow his voice. They don't follow the crowd. They follow the voice of the shepherd. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. If you call him Lord with just a mustard seed of faith, you're one of his sheep. You're a sheep. And your shepherd is a lion. <laughs> Which explains why this can be kind of stressful at times. If you don't trust the lion, the shepherd. Jesus, faith is trust. If you call him Lord, you're one of his sheep. And you know his voice and he calls you by name. And Well, I imagine this is how a shepherd sounds to a sheep. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. Fluffy, blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. Peter, blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Vince, blah, blah. So, you may not be able to comprehend individual words like, hey, Vince, over the next hill, there's some great grass, but you know his voice. In other words, you know what love sounds like. You know what truth sounds like. And so you'll follow the voice of truth and love over the hill to the grass. You know his voice in the sanctuary of your soul. Your shepherd is a lion who is the word of God, who is the word of love. God is love, and that word is the truth. Now sometimes by the grace of God, sheep can comprehend individual words and then pass them on to you, and that's called prophecy. And sometimes, seduced by their own flesh, prophets will knowingly or unknowingly lie about what they hear, and that's called false prophecy. Human religion is basically false prophecy. Us making up stuff about God to get people to do what we want. So St. Paul writes this, don't despise prophecies, but test everything. The words of a prophet can be an incredible and powerful gift, but the words of a prophet on the outside should never ever trump the word of God on the inside in the sanctuary of your own soul. Never ever abdicate your faith to a prophet or the opinions of any political power, religious group, or social institution. They cannot believe for you. And they do not know who you are. To, to them, you are just one more number in, in a book or on a roll. To Jesus, you are his unique and utterly priceless creation, and he chooses to dwell in the temple of your soul. In other words, Jesus is jealous for you, individual, particular you. 
And I'm grateful for you. Because I know that just by tuning in to the sanctuary Denver, some of you are branded as heretics by your conservative evangelical brothers who don't believe that God can uh, save all, or perhaps branded by your liberal mainstream brothers who don't believe that all actually need to be saved from themselves. The biblical message that all humanity must die with Christ and rise with Christ is not popular with the principles and powers of this world, the institutions of this world. But you've recognized the voice of truth and love, the voice of grace, and you're not willing to sacrifice the word in your heart to the religion of men and women. Now, it's also important that you don't simply follow me or Chris or Vince or Andrew or Kathleen or Francis. You must always follow the word in your heart. You must walk by faith. So anyway, back to, back to our story. The man of God surrenders the word of God in his heart to religion in order to belong to the crowd. Does that make sense to you? He surrenders the word in his heart to religion in order to belong to the, to the crowd, and the lion kills him, just kills him, and guards him on the way. The lion is the way. Check this out, verse 24. As he went away, a lion met him on the way, direct way, and killed him, and his body was thrown in the way, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body, and behold, check this out, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the way, and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the old prophet, who had brought him back from the way, heard of it, he said, it's the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord has spoken to him. And he said this to his, to his son, settle the donkey for him, for me. And, and they saddled it, and he went and found his body thrown in the way, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. You understand, this is a really weird lion. This is an unusual lion. In 2005, along with John and Sharna Coors, some of you, Andrew was there. Uh, some of us traveled to Africa where some people in our church had sponsored these uh, power stations in Kenya, not far from where Vincent Donovan uh, had ministered to the Maasai. Anyway, at one point on this uh, safari, we drove right up to a lion. It had just, it was this big male lion. It just killed this water buffalo. It was like just covered with blood and flies. It was just awesome. And we drove right up to it. I mean, I could have leaned out of the Jeep and touched it. And, and the guide said this, don't worry. Lions only kill what they plan to eat. And this lion is so stuffed, he won't kill you because he doesn't want to eat you. So this lion in 1 Kings 13, sees an unusual lion kills the man of God, but doesn't eat him. Along with Bible scholars, theologians like Karl Barth, I think it's pretty clear that Scripture is telling us this is the lion. This lion is the lion of Judah. Now, the old prophet would have guessed that this was the lion of Judah because it was acting so weird, but he wouldn't have known what you know, that the lion of Judah actually is the word of God, who is God, through whom all things that have been made have been made, and without whom not anything that is made is, is made, who became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth, whose name is Jesus. <laughs> and now, I know some of you are maybe getting a little stressed. 
She's thinking, holy crap, I used to love Jesus, Peter. But now I'm scared to death of Jesus because you're saying that if I mess with Jesus, he's going to mess with me. Yep. The truth is, you've already messed with Jesus. The, the moment you first sinned, you took the life of the word from a tree in a garden. You messed with the word of love that is the truth, and now you lost your way. The, the way. The moment you sinned, the moment we sinned, we messed with, with the word. But this is the gospel. Listen close to the gospel. Mess with the word, and the word will mess with you, for the word isn't safe, but the word is good. And nothing is gooder, nothing is more powerful than the word. So when the man of God loses his way, the lion who is the way kills him and drops him in the way. The lion kills him but doesn't eat him. In fact, he guards him. Guards him for what? Well, he's waiting. He's waiting for what? He's waiting for the old prophet, waiting for the old prophet to do what? Verse 28, the lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey, and the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, his own tomb. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. Now that's pretty incredible, because that's basically a Samaritan mourning over his brother, a Jew. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. Now, so much is going on here that I can only barely begin to point. So try and, and follow this. But I hope you notice that the old prophet is saved, for he now believes the word of God, because the man of God from Judah communed with him and died because of the old prophet's sin that had now become his sin, and that should all sound vaguely familiar. You see, the Lion of Judah wasn't only on the road. The Lion of Judah was also in the man of God, communing with the old lion prophet in spite of the fact that the man of God had sinned. And then the lion of God, who is the word of God, was even in the old prophet as he then prophesied to the man of God who had sinned at his table. And notice that the old prophet places the body of the man of God in his own grave, just like Joseph of Arimathea placed the body of Jesus in his own grave, just like you place the body of Christ in your stomach at communion every Sunday. And notice that the word of God, the Lion of Judah, accomplishes the purpose for which he was sent. 300 years later, King Josiah of Judah marches to Bethel, digs up the bones of Jeroboam's false prophets and priests, burns them on King Jeroboam's altar, defiling the altar, just as prophesied, and just as the man of God said, but then 2 Kings 23, 17, King Josiah says, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted that these things that you have done, these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And Josiah said, let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone, along with the bones of the prophet who came out of or from Samaria, the old lying prophet. 
Hundred years later, Ezekiel prophesies to the dry bones, has a vision of the whole house of Israel, that's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, entering into the, into the promised land. Six hundred years later, Joseph of Arimathea places the bones of Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, in his tomb. Matthew 27, verse 52, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the holy ones who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs with his resurrection, they went into the holy city. And you see, that's all just a glimpse of this incredible truth that as in Adam all die, so in Christ, the Lion of Judah, the last Adam, the Adam of God, the man of God and word of God, all will be made alive. The man of God from Judah and the Lion Old Prophet have been or will be wakened from their sleep and perfected by the blood of the Lion of the tribe of Judah who is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's nothing gooder or more powerful than the Word of God, who is God. Now, I'm, I'm trying really hard not to get too philosophical here, but I just hope you see that the man of God from Judah and the old prophet from Samaria, they both wrote themselves out of the story that God is telling with his word. They wrote themselves out with sin, but God was constantly writing them in with, with grace. God is love, and his word is grace, and that's the truth. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? And hopefully you remember that this is the sixth day of creation, and you and I are still being made in the image of God. On the sixth day of creation, sixth day of the week, sixth hour of the day, we took the life of the Lion of Judah on a tree in a garden. And in the same moment, on the same tree, he gave his life. He forgave his life, and so it's there that we're finished in the image of God. It's there we write ourselves out of the story that God is telling, and in the very same moment, he writes us back in. And you see, he doesn't do that with religion. We can't get faith by messing with the word in a book. We get faith by watching the word mess with us. We get faith by confessing our sin and believing God's grace, but that's not something we can simply do. It's something the word of God does in us as he tells our story. I heard there was a, a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. I think the secret chord is confession. That's the sixth chord on the sixth day. We confess sin, and we watch the Word of God turn it into grace and finish us in His image, perfected on the seventh day. Heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, and I'm not singing it right, the major lift, the baffled king composing, hallelujah. You see, it's the major lift after the minor fall that makes the hallelujah. The major lift is not the words of God written in some book. It's the word of God rising in the tomb that is the sanctuary of your soul. Oh, he is a lion in hiding, wrote Jeremiah. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. 
Do you ever feel torn apart by God? I think I have. He is a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Word of God exposes our faithlessness, which is truly death. And we're already dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Scripture. The Word of God exposes our faithlessness, and the Word of God gives us His faithfulness, which is eternal life. You know, when I first read the Chronicles of Narnia, being a good modern-day evangelical Protestant, I thought C.S. Lewis kind of messed up the story of the atonement. Because instead of having Aslan killed by an angry god to feel better about us, Aslan is killed by the witch on a stone table as if he is what's for dinner. I know this room, I've walked this floor I used to live alone before I knew you I've seen your flag on the marble arch Love is not a victory march It's a cone and it's a broken Hallelujah 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 time you let me know what's real and going on below but now you never show it to me do you and remember when i moved in you the holy dark was moving too and every So on the night that we all betrayed him, that his creation betrayed him, wrote themselves out of his story, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. See, this is the surprise. He doesn't eat you. He wants you to eat him. That you might even become him.
the word of God in human flesh. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel, ingest the gospel, and become the gospel. It's good. Amen. Amen. And so, Lord God, uh, we confess that since the very beginning we've been doubting that your word is good. Thank you, Lord God, for revealing that your word is Jesus. And it's the absolute best. And that nothing is more powerful than your word, so that even if we write ourselves out of the story, it's still part of the story that you're writing, and you write us back in, and you reveal the depths of your glory and your infinite love for us. So, Lord God, thank you for what you've shown us. Thank you that you are helping us to believe. You're helping us to trust. We thank you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So anyway, I always do this. I start out kind of with a, a simple practical application point in mind that I can share with you and you can all take and apply to your life. Like, don't mess with the Word of God or the Word of God will mess with you. And I really mean that. I mean that. Don't mess with the Word of God. I mean, don't ignore the Word of God in Scripture. And don't ignore the word of God through others. Most of all, don't ignore the word of God in your heart. In other words, don't sin. Don't, don't lie, okay? Don't cheat. Don't be a jerk, even if religious people encourage you to do so. Most of all, don't deny the word in your own heart in order to be accepted by men, by people, by religious, even religious people. So don't mess with the word or the word will mess with you, and that can be quite painful. And, and I really mean that. I mean, God, God doesn't fart around. That would be another way of saying it. Don't mess with the Word of God. But actually, we've already messed with the Word of God. And actually, the Word of God is already messing with us. And that's why life is so painful. That's why life is, is hard. But have hope, because although the Word of God is not safe, He is good. And you see, that's the gospel. So it seems I always do this. I start with a practical application point, don't mess with the word, and I end preaching the gospel. The word is messing with you, and nothing is gooder, nothing is more powerful than the word. He will accomplish that for which he was sent, and that is to make you in the image and likeness of God that you might enjoy him forever without end, his children, his people, his body, his temple. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and you become the gospel. Amen? Amen. All right. See you next week, Palm Sunday. All right.